Hi guys, welcome to the Art of Acquisitions podcast. Here we discuss how you can create cash flow and grow your wealth with acquisitions. We have a great guest lineup, including Craig. Craig bought two businesses with 10 million in sales, no money down. And Alan, Alan has led multiple deals ranging in value from 1 million to 9 billion. Yes, that was right, 1 million to 9 billion. Art of Acquisitions, simply the fastest strategy to create cash flow and grow your wealth. Welcome everybody, um, it's Taylor Capitals, uh, live broadcast, The Art of Acquisitions, our podcast, uh, it'll also be on the blog as well, and um, we absolutely love acquisitions, uh, you know, business and commercial property, why? Because, well, I just love the, I love the game, I love the journey, I love the process, it is an absolute beautiful game, and it's one I love. Uh, it's not for everybody, I've got to say that, and it's not, it's simple, it's not easy though, but you know, when you start to do acquisitions in your life, you can really make a step change. And that might be just cash flow for you, maybe capital chunks. Or what we love to do is we love to create kind of passive income or cash flow and capital chunks for investors who invest passively and get this kind of Netflix investing, a kind of earn and learn approach, which is quite cool. And there's nothing more that lights me up as either doing a deal, help somebody else do a deal, or paying you know our investors uh, money from one of the deals. So it's just it's just a wonderful thing, and I suppose one of the coolest things is to do a deal. We see it as a holistic approach where we're helping the chap on the other side perhaps exit and go and do that thing. So you're helping releasing somebody from their what could be chains to help them go and do that thing. And that's quite a cool thing as well. Kind of lights me up uh, because I always love to find out the journey of the person that's selling. Um, I, I just love people's journey. It's just a fascinating thing for me. I don't know why. Must have been dropped as a kid or something. I don't know, but I love it. <laughs> and today we've got the absolute honor, privilege and pleasure to have Tyler Wood from, uh, and, you know, his background is incredible, but he's currently uh, saving the planet with Gravitas Carbatura. And um, so let's welcome virtually uh, Tyler Wood. Welcome to the, the podcast. Absolute pleasure to have you here, buddy. Could, could you give everybody a little introduction of kind of who you are, your kind of background kind of thing? Sure. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, my name is Tyler Wood. Um, uh, I've been in the hedge fund industry for 20 years uh, from uh, the New England area and uh, came down to Naples, Florida about 17 years ago. Worked in various uh, roles within the hedge fund industry, uh, working with brilliant people along the way and brilliant thesis. Um, and I think my role really was, you know, meeting brilliant people and introducing them to other brilliant people and just shutting up and letting them discuss what they had to share and share their brilliant ideas and, um, you know, try and, you know, uh, retain my 2% of the, uh, of the brilliance and over 20 years, uh, you know, um, I retained a bit, um, but I also got to meet some incredible people along the way. And, uh, and one of those people is actually going to be coming up on your, uh, on your pod, uh, after me. So he certainly is. And, uh, you'll find out soon for everybody listening. <laughs> and uh, it's one to watch out just like this one is. Um, so that's great. Tw 20 years in the hedge fund industry. I mean, that is quite an incredible you know, I mean, you're immersed in that world of high finance uh, and whatnot and, uh, you know, asset investment, asset management. To go from that kind of perspective to what you do now, um, which 
it's the same kind of thing, but you're, you know, you've got a bigger cause at mind. How, how did that transition happen? Because one world's completely different from the other kind of world. Well, yeah, it's, um, it's true. Um, but I think there's a trade thesis in this as well. Um, that is um, probably one of the biggest opportunities uh, in the history of mankind. Uh, although we had a good part in causing the problem in the first place. Uh, but it's also uh, a, a tremendous opportunity for mankind to kind of come together against a common purpose and uh, and make some serious change at scale. Yeah. And so before we go on to that, what that is that you're trying to fix for future generations, let's just go back, rewind the clock a bit. And, yeah. you know, getting into the hedge fund industry, obviously yeah. deals, uh, you know, deals are plenty, raising money, doing deals, acquisitions, potentially, depending on what, exactly what you're doing in the acquisition space or the hedge fund space. Sorry. Can you tell us how you got into that? You know, how did you get into that? You don't just walk into the hedge fund space. How did you manage? Because that's like a very uh, close knit community. It was, and it was really weird. I ended up, um, you know, I was living on Martha's Vineyard, actually. And um, in the winters in Martha's Vineyard, you can either become an intellectual or an alcoholic. Um, and because there's really not much to do on Martha's Vineyard, this small island off of Massachusetts uh, in the winter. But um, I became a student of money coming out of college. Mm -hmm. And uh, people are like, what does that mean? And that really, I was just kind of studying the history of the rise and falls of monetary systems. And I thought to me, it was fascinating. Yeah. And, um, and so it got me into certain, you know, currencies and currency trading and commodities. And I actually went more commodities and currencies first, and then into the stocks and bonds space. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, you know, got some great mentors along the way, and met some great, you know, traders. Uh, but I was introduced to a gentleman um, out of New York that uh, managed a basket of floor traders with a, you know, minimum of 25 years trading from the floor. And those people were like the the Jedi warriors of uh, risk management. And um, but they were very discretionary traders, and um, and did very well. And I and I raised and introduced you know, tens of millions of dollars of investors from around the world, uh, you know, to that, uh, to that fund. And it gave me a tremendous amount of, you know, background, but everything kind of shifted from discretionary niche uh, trading to uh, algorithmic uh, trading and, um, and everything. Yeah. Went from relationships to split second automated algorithmic. Yeah. So I followed that as well. And, uh, you know, both uh, working in the high frequency space, as well as uh, just putting portfolios of algorithms uh, together, trading algorithms together for, for clients. Mm -hmm. And it got a tremendous sense of, uh, you know, fulfillment from it, you know, looking at some of the uh, potential, you know, returns of blending um, great uh, trading algorithms. And then, um, you know, I actually, in that process of, uh, of working that algo space, ended up um, meeting uh, my, my new um, you know, partner. And um, he was actually one of the behind the scenes you know, wizards of, of operations, of big you know, rollouts of you know, industrial scale type of, of uh, business operations. And for me, that was fascinating because I was always working with like these you know, uh, you know, math geeks, trade, ge you know, people like, you know, really into algo and, and managing the, uh, the high frequency space and the algorithmic space. And this uh, person uh, actually had tremendous real business 
speed to scale uh, industrial type of background. And that that was fascinating to me. So I'll take it. That's Alan you're talking about. Yeah, that's Alan. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, (laughs) he likes to start businesses, grow and scale. I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. When you buy and sell, like, you know, he's bought and sold like 40 or 50 companies, uh, taken several companies public and just, you know, um, and he built uh, the, you know, like the intranet for the Department of Defense in the in the late 90s. So if yeah. you can imagine the level of, of complexity um, that uh, was managed there. Um, but in any case, we became just friends and uh, got together frequently um and you know to talk business and then it just really evolved organically um actually to work together uh and now it's scaling into you know something of a next level type of uh uh, absolutely and so from the hedge fund industry 20 years embedded in that algorithmic at the end of the day you know split second trading um to then moving into this, you know, start, grow and scale, that's kind of global domination play that you're doing just now, which is no mean feat for anybody. Uh, but, you know, th- obviously it's a great addition to the team, having Alan on board who's, you know, uh, started and sold 40 companies. But what would you, what advice would you give to somebody starting out right now, uh, doing something that hasn't been done before, but they've got a mission of vision, you know, a kind of vision of where they, they see it, what kind of problem they want to fix. What kind of advice, given the benefit of you've just gone through this and you've got to a, a, a big size already, um, what kind of advice would you give to someone starting out kind of thing? Um, well, I would say that um, the business landscape is changing dramatically as we speak, you know, even just in the process of, you know, putting a price on, on carbon. Uh, um, you know, uh, we've been uh, putting uh, tremendous amounts of, you know, trash in our, you know, in the ground, but for every, you know, one ton of trash you put in the ground, we're putting 35 tons in our atmosphere. So you can imagine the scope, but we don't see it happening. So my, uh, and so what we're going to be starting to do is we're going to be starting to be, you know, charged for our, you know, Mm -hmm. for our uh, atmospheric waste, not just our physical or water waste. You know, you're, everyone's charged for their waste streams and now the, even the invisible stuff, you know, uh, greenhouse gases and CO2 and things that are going to be started being charged. So it's for, for people that are getting into business, I'd take that into account. Yeah. And when does that come in, the, the chargeable for the invisible stuff? Roughly? That's, that's, you know, it's all kind of being discussed. You, you have a uh, task force and, you know, Mark Carney and, and uh, the like yeah. all really coming together with, uh, you know, a voluntary carbon market. Uh, but for some, it's you know you know mandatory. So there's yeah. some really big liabilities that people are sitting on. I think also that we're starting to redefine what value actually is. And see, when you uh, say they're sitting on a lot of liabilities, could this be potentially retrospective, or is it going forward? Um, well, you know, I think uh, Bill Gates was trying to you know do it retrospective. Uh, but you know, his technology at, you know, capturing carbon at $400 a ton, uh, that's going to be really expensive if he plans on doing it that way. Um, so, uh, but there are some that are looking at trying to, um, get our CO2 emissions down to below pre-industrial levels. And that's a, that's a noble and, you know, almost impossible goal. Uh, but perhaps a, a, a longer term goal. Um, and so then there's other that others that are just trying to get it down to, you know, levels of, 
you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago. And so we'll, we'll see what happens with. Time will tell. Time will yeah, tell. Time will tell. But if everyone identifies what a common threat is, threat is, then everyone can get together. So what's great about that is that, you know, like in New Zealand, you know, you had the Maoris, just the clans, uh, you know, battling each other, you know, for, you know, generations and generations. And then all of a sudden you had, uh, you know, uh, you know, British ships show up and then they're all like, yeah. uh, maybe we all to get together and, you know, work together to deal with the, you know, uh, yeah. you know, you know, the, you know, foreign, uh, influences. Yeah. And so now we've got uh, a situation where I think, uh, one of the byproducts potentially of climate change and identifying the fact that it's a threat to humanity is that maybe humanity could actually work together, uh, uh instead of bickering over politics. Yeah. So in terms of your advice to people starting up, I mean, that's a, that's a big challenge, a big vision, which is really admirable, you know, trying to, protect the planet, number one, uh, trying to save it from devastation and save it for the next generations. Uh, but for someone starting out a little bit smaller vision, uh, mm -hmm. what would you suggest to them in terms of how you, you know, get to critical mass kind of thing? You're starting something, getting to critical mass, would your big thing be team or would your big thing be, um, you know, what yeah. would you? I, I would um, uh, somewhat redefine what value is. Um, you know, and I think that really has to, you know, if you have like a company like Amazon and you have a bunch of people like having to, you know, you know, have need to go to therapy because they're suicidal because they don't want to, you know, they, they're, you know, depressed working for some massive conglomerate that's making billions of dollars and pun billions of dollars and not paying any taxes on that. Um, and like a large percentage of your pot of your working population want to like commit suicide. Well, that's not value. You know, value is actually everybody that's a stakeholder in the company finds value in working for the company or working with each other and working with the community. And so I think people have to redefine what value is beyond just dollars and cents. And that's what the, the term environmental social governance or ESG uh, mm -hmm. and the sustainable development goals really are, are, are yeah. about is kind of redefining what value is. If the top person's just making billions of dollars and everyone else wants to commit suicide, then you know maybe that's not a a, a business that you really want to scale. Yes. Uh, maybe it's something that you want to look at and take a more holistic view that every stakeholder, not just shareholder, uh, is is finding fulfillment in working with you. I think that's a great point, actually. You know, creating partnerships, or for me, collaboration is a new way to go forward. Know, collaborate together for a common goal kind of thing and together we can kind of hopefully achieve more and you're certainly doing that with uh, gravitas uh, which is an incredible company so can you tell people what gravitas is because someone from the hedge fund algorithmic background who's then started this massive global kind of uh, you know plan of attack uh, mm -hmm. which is really you you are the first i suppose as you know, responders to the planetary issues at hand here. So what is Gravitas? What is it doing? What, what's, what's so important about sustainability ESG investing? Um, yeah, well, we're uh, putting together basically the hot planet repair team. So we're, you know, working with people that are identifying the problem saying, okay, well, let's come together and solve these problems. And, and we have a number of um, intellectual property uh, technologies that, you know, we've, we've brought in. Uh, primarily, uh, we've got uh, Gravitas Carbatura. Uh, that is that's an interesting 
and uh, phenomenal uh, um, business, and we're getting just tremendous support, both you know institutionally uh, as well as uh, from uh, the U.S. government. And so there's some there's some evolution in in how this is is going to be rolled out. But essentially, um, we are the lowest cost uh, atmospheric carbon capture uh, on the planet. So we're more than seventy percent uh, lower carbon capture out of the atmosphere than, yeah. you know, other competitors that are out there. And um, essentially, um, we have an evolution of technology that will come to scale, uh, almost like the Teslas of carbon capture. Yeah. Uh, and so we're going to be coming out with a series of modular uh, industrial scale solutions for um, uh, eliminating plastic waste, uh, for uh, uh, direct air carbon capture, for remediating um, billions of gallons of uh, agricultural runoff water, um, and also creating um, uh, biomaterials. And another really fascinating, and this is going to be some uh, content of some future post uh, biochar. Uh, and that'll be a really fascinating uh, wormhole for you to, to, to dive down. But biochar can be processed into other materials, even biographene and uh, nano diamonds. So yeah. there's some um, some advanced materials that are going to be uh, coming out uh, in addition to biomaterials. But right now, obviously, there's a big problem. I love that. Well, I don't love it, but it is what it is. All planet repair kit. I mean, that's pretty cool. So that's one global issue um, that you're trying to resolve. In the meantime, obviously, so why why carbon? You know why carbon positives? What problem does that solve? Obviously, it's seventy percent cheaper than anything else on the planet. But yeah. who's got that problem? That's uh, a great, great question. What are they doing with it just now? How are they solving that problem just now? Kind of. Sure. So um, think of it this way. Uh, let's think of an oil well. They're drilling for earth-trapped carbon, and when they drill that earth-trapped carbon, they have uh, proven uh, reserves uh, in that well. But they also have a decline rate that they, after a certain period of time, it starts declining and declining and you get lower and lower yields unless you re, you know, uh, rework the well, uh, refrack it, et cetera. Well, what we're doing is we're air mining. Now, air mining is a term that is kind of new to, is new to most people, but we're pulling uh, atmospheric carbon uh, out of the atmosphere. And so we have a, uh, you know, unlimited proven reserves. We don't need to go drill any well in the ground. Uh, we can pull this carbon out of the atmosphere for lower than it costs to drill offshore oil. And we can make those materials about 150% more materials than you can with, uh, you know, petroleum we can with our biomass. And so, um, and we also have zero decline rate. So imagine if you were going to drill a well of the future um, where you have uh, unlimited proven reserves and uh, uh, no decline rate, and they last for decades. Yeah. So this is what we are building in a modular form um, that can scale uh, basically around the world. And those, <clears throat> when you're doing that, they'll be the carbon footprints will be sold to companies that are polluting the atmosphere that they have to buy so much to offset, um, you know, what they're doing. Yeah, yeah we're, we're originators of, of, uh, of carbon credits. 
but we're also producers of um, of of biomaterials, uh, including biochar. And uh, and biochar is a, a phenomenal um, substance that can uh, treat soils uh, into uh, it's basically pure carbon uh, with a lot of surface area inside, um, and so it can be really processed in some some interesting things. But uh, it can be used in cement as an additive, and you know, in basically replacing sand. So yeah. in the commercial space, imagine instead of your concrete being you know a big carbon footprint, you know being actually a carbon sink so our modern roads our modern buildings of the future will actually be carbon sinks rather than a huge pollution of our atmosphere and that's really what uh, uh biochar uh, uh from an industrial standpoint and commercial real estate standpoint infrastructure standpoint of everything built in the future could actually be built with uh biochar instead of uh in, by replacing the sand in, in that's incredible so you've got unlimited supply the supply doesn't cost you anything apart from obviously the capital expenditure to get the production facility up front unlimited supply there's nobody there's no transportation in that supply it's just there uh, and then you're producing this obviously char carbon char at the back end that can be used and that is a sink as well yes. so yes so this is a, a a real holistic approach here and i suppose your biggest goal is that one day you, you switch off the machines because you fixed the planet? Yeah, well, um, the, that's uh, that's gonna we're gonna need probably you know a million of them uh, to solve that problem. But you know that uh, that's some tremendous uh, potential for growth. And you know we we've uh, you know each one of these facilities actually creates about five hundred uh, construction jobs and about a hundred permanent jobs per per facility. And we're building out campuses of six modules. So, uh, you know, and we did a, an, an SDG assessment, um, a sustainable development goals assessment. And um, we got a 96.8, where in the US, the benchmark average is 37. So we're like the pinnacle of uh, regenerative infrastructure for municipalities, you know, across the country. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see, uh, how, you know, how it's adopted. Um, you know, we're in discussions with the uh, uh, Department of Energy um, yeah. and um, and other uh, institutions that have been, uh, you know, uh, very excited about what we're doing. Yeah. So unlimited supply, free supply, and then the, the obviously the factory then produces the carbon char that can be sold at zero cost for the raw materials uh, while you're fixing the planet. Uh, it sounds uh, like not a bad business model, which I suppose why uh, probably the biggest uh, fund on the planet is just invested with you chaps. Uh, can you tell us, tell us a little bit about that, about you know how that experience was, um, you know, in terms of uh, the, the big hedge fund coming in and putting a chunk of, well, a small change for them, but still a big, big chunk. Um, well, we have a um, we have a great relationship with um, uh, Morgan Stanley. Um, and that's been very exciting to kind of uh, develop. Um, and then we also had uh, recent discussions and going deeper and deeper with the Department of Energy, where they have uh, $40 billion of loan guarantees to go towards, um, you know, sustainable energy, uh, carbon capture, uh, waste of fuel, you know, a number of avenues. So we actually have uh, a number of some of the large 
uh, impact investor institutions, um, uh, you know, diving into what we are, what we're doing. And they're coming back and their feedback is just, you know, through the moon. And they're saying it's incredibly ambitious. They love the space and they really are excited about, you know, uh, more involvement. And, and ultimately, because it's it's somewhat new, even though, you know, um, photosynthesis has been around a while and that's one of our primary <laughs> technologies that we can rely on, um, is that uh, um, we have a... Uh, uh, a, a, a series of advancements of evolutions that we can introduce into a campus uh, to completely, you know, de-risk this yeah. from an institutional allocation standpoint. And so we're uh, uh, basically kind of creating various evolutions of our, of our system uh, that introduce new levels of complexity up and up to the point of even producing food and uh, farmer grade type of uh, biomaterials uh, or like basically the raw materials for the next stage of modern civilization. Yeah. So it sounds incredible. And for everybody listening that, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a new concept all based on scientific, you know, science has been around forever. Photosynthesis, as Tyler said, but we're talking about actually, you know, the raw materials being free, but they're not actually free. You're getting paid to take the raw materials in. Why? Because you're selling carbon credits to companies. So you're getting paid for the raw materials, no transport cost to get them to you. All there is is the capital expenditure of the actual factory itself. And that's producing waste material that is actually, you know, carbon char, which is used then to perhaps bring down construction costs of commercial property or residential property or potentially used for printing of homes, you know, in the very near future. 3D um, printing, yeah, exactly. You can throw this in 3D printing and that's uh, even some of the biomaterials like the cellulosic uh, nanocrystals, that's, uh, that's seven times stronger than steel. Uh, so imagine putting something like that together and, and, and you know, what you can mold that into uh, what you could 3D print that into, you yeah. can create textiles and from the microfibers. So a lot of uh, industries are processing biomass into, you know, rough materials. Uh, and we have the technology to process it down to the nano level um, and some very exciting kind of outputs. Uh, and we'll have materials labs and things like that to really push the advancement of, of, of uh, biomaterials yeah. and textiles and paper, pulp, packaging, building materials, you know, plastics. Um, and then even from the biochar standpoint, that's just, you know, blowing me away, the applications for, for this, uh, not only from an agricultural standpoint and uh, advancing um, the water retention for agricultural lands, um, but also for the standpoint of be, being able to put it into our roads, into our cities, uh, and turning our cities into carbon sinks instead of, you know, huge, you know, polluters. And, and the ability to print homes at seven times the strength of steel, um, as opposed to some homes in the U.S., obviously, because, you know, a lot of places you get nice weather. We, yeah. You know, they're built a little bit stronger over here, but over there, some of them are built uh, perhaps a little lighter than they should be built, where this can actually, you know, if there is a storm, if there is devastation, Potentially, machines can go in and print homes uh, very, very fast 
and very, very strong as well. That could be an incredible thing. But out of all the applications, Tyler, which is really, I mean, it's hard to get your head around this and it's super exciting. What is the single biggest um, for you exciting, you know, purpose for this uh, carbon char? Never mind you cleaning up the air and the atmosphere, which is great. And you're getting paid to do that via carbon credits being sold to companies, which is bleeding awesome. Somebody's yeah. paying you for the raw materials while you're saving the planet. But on the back end, what is your most exciting application for that carbon char kind of thing? Um, uh, actually, um, uh, biographing. Uh, if you can, you further, you can further uh, process uh, the biochar into a, a biographing. And, um, and even down to nano diamonds. So there's some advanced type of processing that we can, that we can, um, apply to this material. And since we'll have so much of it, we'll have plenty of availability of, of testing and, 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 uh, streamlining its, its highest and best use. Uh, but we're business to business. So we're really focusing on kind of building block materials for, uh, you know, yeah. for the future. Yeah, no, fantastic, a hell of an exciting space. And uh, I've been watching your journey, um, you know, over the last year on LinkedIn, um, and it's been a hell of a journey. It's uh, it's incredible. And the amount of traction you're getting, obviously, with Morgan Stanley, the, um, the, you know, the government, uh, obviously has a vested interest in making sure these kind of uh, uh, projects are pushed forward. And when's the first big factory built? When's, uh, when's D-Day? Well, we had an excellent meeting earlier uh, this week, um, uh, for at a uh, you know basically a, a solar powered city uh, that we have uh, yeah. not far from here, and uh, we're hopefully getting a, a, a site selection over the next uh, couple of uh, weeks, or maybe even this week. Uh, but in any case, we'll uh, we're we're dialing that in now, and we're about it's about fourteen months uh, to to build. Uh, we hope to commission everything within the next uh, three to four months and uh, and then get to it so we'll have we'll have uh, you know a short year of production uh, yeah. next year and then full production the year after and and um, and these facilities last uh, last you know decades so it's it's pretty exciting uh, the uh, the scale because the first module is huge but we're you know our site is actually for a campus of six. So we're, you know, this is just the beginning of the beginning. And how big is one of these facilities? You know, square feet, square meters? Um, the, uh, our high density biofactory is, you know, just around 100,000 square feet. I think the total air area is around 200,000 square, uh, 200, square feet of other, of other um, you know, uh, uh, facilities attached. So uh, I think around seven to 10 acres, you know, per, yeah. per module. Um, so we're looking at, uh, you know, somewhere around 70 acres, I believe was the, uh, was the quote for our, for our, um, uh, that's, for, that, for that's our, incredible. I mean, 70 acres, 12 to 14 months, something brand new. It's not been done before. I remember one of our first development projects, uh, it was only 13,000 square feet, uh, and it was a leisure facility and it took us 13 months. <laughs> yeah. Well, per, per module. So if you can imagine, you know, I guess that seven acres, each seven acres being, uh, you know, 14 months, but we want to commission them and get them kind of going in a speed to scale because we've got a, we've got a problem where, uh, 
uh, a lot of people talking about climate change is like, oh, we're all just going to get together and plant a tree. And, um, you know, uh, a tree can capture one ton of carbon over 100 years. You know, that's solving a 100 year problem. But we have a, you know, uh, we have a much, you know, more uh, drastic you know, situation at hand, and we need to solve these problems much quicker. So if you could imagine one of these facilities, each one of these modules is like the equivalent of 20,000 acres of agricultural land and its ability to to capture carbon out of the atmosphere. Yeah, fantastic. And that leads us on very nicely in terms of talking about development, um, because, uh, you know, somebody that everybody knows and loves, Walt Disney, that tells about this story. Walt Disney, obviously, way back when, his first, I think it was 49 acres or something, he developed that from orange trees to, um, you know, the Walt Disney as we know it. Uh, you know, I think it took him 13 months as well, which is quite an impressive feat. But somehow you were involved in that or your family was involved in that. Tell us that story because everybody loves a good old Disney story. <laughs> um, yes. Well, this was uh, a, a ways back, but uh, yeah, our family owned uh, property. Uh, on the on the land where uh, Disney is uh, located here in Orlando, and um, you know that was actually uh, sold prior to the 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 Disney phenomenon that took hold. So uh, unfortunately, I I have a long history of uh, family owning land um, and selling out too soon. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's all—it's always too soon if you look a hundred years in the future or fifty yeah, years. Yeah, in the future. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but you—you've got to do it at some point, I suppose. But not everybody gets to claim that right of selling out to be part of that Walt Disney story in Florida. So, yeah. do you have what? What a what a story! You know, fantastic. And yeah. um, and let brings us on to something else. Actually, um, obviously, you're part of a a non-profit kind of organization called Kiva. And, um, you know, what is that? And how did you get involved in that? And what's your passion for driving that forward? Yeah, Kiva is actually pretty uh, spectacular. Um, I learned about it about 14 years ago now. And, um, you know, it just started uh, because I read about Mohammed Yunus and the Grameen Bank out of Bangladesh. Yeah. And, um, you know, I thought it was just uh, uh, fascinating because they were micro lending to predominantly women uh, to help them with their crafts and small businesses. And it was more of like a, instead of a trickle down, it was a bubble up, you know, in this world of money coming and money printing and all the stuff, who says it has to just go from the top down? You know, why can't it trickle down and bubble up? You know, there's no problem with it, if, especially when, you know, these central banks are printing money like crazy. Um, and so I think that uh, the stand, from the standpoint of my history of, you know, the history of money, mm-hmm. I was like, you know, uh, people that are poor um, aren't suffering from a lack of morals. They're suffering from a lack of cash. Yeah. And so you just have to kind of shift your thinking away from that kind of mindset. And so um, Kiva actually allows micro lending. Uh, They've been doing it uh, for uh, just over, I think 16 or 17 years, but um, they've loaned somewhere around $2 billion of microloans to women and men in developing and developed countries for their small businesses. And they have like a 96% repayment rate. What's, uh, what's the average amount of the loan at any one time? Anywhere from like 500 to, you know, 
you know, 10,000, but sometimes there are large collectives where they're raising a hundred thousand dollars or something. But I think it's about a million and a half dollars raised per week from Kiva for microloans. And, um, I'm for somewhere around 600 microloans in somewhere around 60 countries now. Mm. Um, and so it's a, it's a phenomenal, uh, organization. If you can imagine lending out like $2 billion with a 96% repayment rate, and then they look at the IMF and their, you know, their track record of these massive trickle down loans and you know, how, those been those have been funneled out of developing countries into private banks in Switzerland. You know, all of a sudden you'd be like, hmm, maybe that trickle down theory isn't trickling down to where it's supposed to trickle down to. Yes, uh, and maybe we should maybe focus a little bit more on the bubble up. <laughs> maybe it is trickling down, but it started with a flood and it ends up with a trickle. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it's a yeah. Yeah, it's like dripping down and people are starving, looking for like, you know, you know, you know, sacrificing their morals and their families and their livelihoods to, to, to get us uh, the water. Um, I think that uh, there's a, a new form of, um, of um, capitalism uh, starting to take hold. Uh, and it starts, it kind of actually, it made that influence through uh, Kiva and the micro lending and and getting money in the hands of of poor people uh that like i said they're not lacking morals and we're looking at poor people like they're lacking morals or some you know uh that they are just lacking they're lacking opportunity (laughs) and they're lacking cash (laughs) that's it smes you know they're in the west they well in the uk they produce 55 percent of the gdp you know they employ the most people and They're the ones that aren't as sophisticated, so they don't know the tax evasion strategies, you know, like it, like the Amazons, the Googles, and whatever. They're not yeah. based in Dublin, Liechtenstein, and Luxembourg. You know, they're just paying their taxes. So they're probably the best people to give the money to. Go and expand, you know, go and rock the GDP and get us back onto the, the kind of conveyor belt, you know? Right. Um, I couldn't agree more, absolutely. And then, you know, from just going back quickly, because uh, then I want to jump onto something else. Uh, Gravitas, in terms of starting that up, what was your biggest, you know, if you started that again, what was the biggest insight you would change that you advise someone else? Well, I've gone through this, and if I did it again, I would maybe do this. Um, well, you know, we first started uh, with solving the problem with the, you know, looking at the hemp industry because they lacked industrial processing. Um, and there's a couple of years ago, there's six and a half billion dollars of hemp that rotted in the fields because there wasn't the infrastructure to actually process the stuff. And then the processing that they did have actually had huge waste streams. And so, um, you know, we started looking at the thesis of solving problems. Mm -hmm. And then we realized that we had to go bigger and bigger and bigger. And the, and the, the reality is, is that you just, you sometimes have to pan out of solving a small problem and then solving it and looking at it saying, no, we're solving a bigger problem here. Mm-hmm. And um, in fact, you know, instead of going and saying we're going in to solve a, a multi-billion dollar problem in the hemp uh, processing industry, we're solving a multi-trillion dollar problem in uh, climate change. Yeah. Absolutely. And that kind of panning out that, you know, being more macro going 100,000 feet up, 
Is that the biggest thing that you would suggest to entrepreneurs or your both? You actually, you you have to be able to, you know, be able to mentally pan out, but in a business operations, you actually have to pan down to the very smallest detail. Yeah. Uh, So you have to really be able to change your microscope um, and show that your business plan uh, is detailed down to the microscopic issues and scale up to the solving the global issues. So, uh, and it's, you know, probably very difficult from a person starting a small business, but, you know, uh, the, the people that I'm working with, uh, you know, dealing with large speed to scale industrial type of applications, uh, I've kind of found myself uh, amongst, and I couldn't be more proud and honored to be working with uh, such an incredible team. No, it sounds great. Mind elasticity. I, I love it. You know, yeah. <laughs> macro, micro. All a lot of it. cranial power going on with our, with our team. <laughs> Absolutely fantastic. And one final thing, because I, I love in life, I've had a ton of challenges. And whenever I find a challenge that we're going through, yes, it's stressful, wouldn't wish it on anybody, but usually within that challenge, you're going through it and you get to the other side, you've learned a massive lesson uh, and then you, you find a gift within that lesson. It helps you change your approach going forward and create a completely different, better result going forward. And I always look for that and I look for that in people um, because it's always there. I always find it kind of thing. And it's always, you know, people love to share that kind of thing. And you obviously had a, a massive challenge and I see the book in, behind you there, Bring Maddie Home. Um, oh, yeah. Mostly very close to your, you know, dear to your heart. And that must have been, I would think, your biggest challenge in your life. And, um, you know, I, w- I would imagine because you, you then obviously took you a while and you wrote a book about it. And but tell us a little bit about the struggles because, sure. you know, that that's an incredible story. And um, yeah. it really is in terms of what you've went through, mobsters, <laughs> corrupt policemen. Um, yeah. Tell us what obviously set the scene for everybody because nobody knows sure. the story. So I have a uh, I have a beautiful son. He's uh, eleven. Um, he's half Bangladeshi. He was uh, born here in uh, Naples, Florida, and uh, the mother um, had uh, uh, kind of coerced uh, me to allow her to go to you know back and forth to Bangladesh six months out of the year. Uh, the first six months. Uh, came and went. I went there, you know, dropped him off and then came home and then instantly the parental alienation and all kinds of stuff. And I was realizing this is the beginning of a, a, a staging of, of child abduction. So I immediately tried to nip it in the bud and, and end the um, the ability for that to happen. And I, I, I lost. I lost in court. They, they said, nope, you, you said you would allow it. Now uh, you have to have let it you know continue so it happened uh again and then you know i realized you know this is going to be trouble then uh when he was three and then when he was four uh he was gone and uh it was you know very challenging uh basically she said you know good luck with your pieces of paper from america he's he's bangladeshi now and the you know parental alienation and and lack of access but my son was four at the time. He learned how to Skype and reached out to me and said, you know, you know, daddy, you just got to get me back. I don't four years old. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So it was really actually pretty, pretty cool. Um, and then, so I basically lived in Asia for that most of that year, uh, you know, 
putting the plans together to find him and then uh, get him out of there. So I went and, um, uh, in, in a July and then went back in October and basically had to sneak around and build my case. And, and I had to, uh, and I, I found him at his school and, uh, then we took, we went to court and they said, well, you can have your son, um, but for six months, but you can't leave the country with him. And so I said, yeah, absolutely. You know, where do I sign? And, uh, and then the following day I went to the U S embassy and I was like, break out the chopper, (laughs) you know, (laughs) we're out of here. Uh, but they said, well, we can't help you, but we can give you an emergency passport. And essentially I had to, uh, find a way to sneak out of the country. Um, and, uh, through a migrant worker plane out of uh, Chittagong to, uh, to Dubai. And, um, and, uh, but we had to basically sleep, uh, in a Bangladeshi police station, we had um, hitmen hired. We, there, you know, there was, uh, you know, bribes of the police, bribes of the judges, attorneys. It was like uh, expedi- expedition fees. You know, ex- expedite this, expedite that, money, money, money. But I basically uh, had uh, gone there solo and developed uh, friends there that um, had sufficient connection and resources to, uh, you know, yeah. to help get the job done and, uh, their friends and brothers for life for, uh, for helping me. So I, uh, created some, some lifelong family in the process. Absolutely. Well, that must be the, probably the best acquisition story I've ever heard or ever will hear or more like a merger. <laughs> yeah. 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 We, uh, we have a beautiful life together. Uh, my son and I, and, uh, we, you know, we have all these lakes around our, our house. So we go uh, electric skateboarding and skateboarding around uh, to uh, our adventures and our botanical garden. And yeah. uh, so it's been wonderful, wonderful existence these last six years. Yeah, fantastic. And the persistence and the commitment to get through that must have been incredible. And I suppose that's a great metaphor for life for everybody. Um, you know, if you something that's dear to you, you know, hold on to it no matter what you're going through. And that persistence will see you through to the end. Um, absolutely. So, congrats on that. Well done. That must have been a yeah. hell of a time. Um, <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> absolutely. And uh, Tyler, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks very much for coming on the, the podcast. Uh, love to have you back on at some point because uh, love speaking to people that have you know been in the space for a while. You, you know, your transition from hedge fund. Or, or that lone remote island to figure out what you're going to do to hedge fund, to then, uh, you know, doing your part and saving the planet. And I, I just absolutely love the model. The model is incredible. Free resources, you're getting paid for your, you know, your, your resources to then sell at the back end. Um, who doesn't want to be part of that? It's amazing. I've got to take my hat off to you. And I suppose your biggest merger acquisition is, you know, rekindling getting yourself back with your son that's amazing and and the trouble that you know you've been through with that experience is just phenomenal so thanks very much been an absolute pleasure thank you for coming and we'll look forward to seeing you again awesome thanks dan love to talk to you love to see you thanks a lot